simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom, as well as the kindest and gentlest man in the whole realm. The kingdom was known for its peace, harmony, and goodwill. Neighbors cherished one another, and years would pass without a single crime being committed. Doesn't that sound like a nice place to live? One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into the throne room with ill tidings. He said, there's a thief in your kingdom, sire, said the servant. The king was astonished. Find the thief, and when you do, bring him to me. He will be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished as well. It had been such a long time since a crime had been committed, they could hardly imagine who would have done such a thing. A week went by, and the servant made his way to the throne room again. I have some bad news for you, sir, quietly reported the servant. The thief has not been found, and he continues to rob from your people. In anger, the king raised his voice, and he said, Find the thief, and when you do, give him twenty-five lashes. And the people began to murmur among themselves, Who could withstand such a punishment? Who could be committing such a crime? As time went on, the servant once again came back to the throne room with yet another bad report. Your majesty, the thief has still not been found. We have searched in vain for him, and your people are still being robbed. The king was enraged. He said, find the wretched thief, and when you do, his punishment will be 50 lashes. And the people were filled with dread. They were not even sure the king himself could withstand such a punishment. And if he could not, then certainly no one else could. Who could be doing such a thing? Soon afterward, the servant again approached the king in his throne room. His face was pale. His voice was timid and hollow. He said, your highness, spoke the servant, the thief has been found. And he said, well, bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that poured into the throne room slowly parted, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room. To the utter shock and dismay of all, it was the king's mother. She stood there trembling and crying. Her small, frail body was shaking with fear and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone could have expected of such a crime. And there stood the king in shock and deeply wounded. The crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves. What would the merciful king do? He raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he said. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging. This frail woman would not even last a few strokes. The old woman was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, exposing her back to the whipmaster. Her ribs were counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, said the king, and that not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised. But just as the whipmaster was about to unleash the first stroke, the king cried, Halt! The crowd sighed in utter relief, but the feeling did not last for, for long. The king stood from his throne. He slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. He began to walk down the stairs towards his mother. He laid aside his royal robe and finely woven tunic. Coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her under his frame. The king spoke, now administer the lashes. Thus in one act did the king display pure mercy and perfect justice. I read a story this morning that someone else wrote about a king who is unlike other kings, 
a king who is able to display perfect justice and yet perfect mercy because of the love that he showed for his mother. And this morning we're going to talk about the greatest king of all, King Jesus. And we want to talk about his life as it is led up to and it is alluded to through the lives of three other kings that we see in his family tree. Now what's interesting about King Jesus is that Matthew presents Jesus as the king, but not the king that the Jews would expect. His coming is not marked by trumpets or crowds, but rather with a manger and with barn animals. His father and mother on earth were not royalty, but they were carpenters. His followers were not officers or generals or soldiers, but they were fishermen. He did not wear a crown of thorns, but he, he did not wear a crown of gold, but he wore a crown of thorns. He was not proclaimed as king of the Jews on his throne. He was proclaimed as king of the Jews from the cross. As we consider this morning the king of kings and the Lord of lords, we must understand what Jesus came to the earth to do. And the three kings we're going to talk about this morning point us to the character of King Jesus. There's books in the Bible that talk about the kings of Israel. They're quite interesting books to read about. One thing you'll notice is that it will say some kings were good and they did good in the sight of the Lord. And then some kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All of them had issues. All of them sinned against God. All of them died. You can read through the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. You'll see this king did what was right or did what was evil, and he died, pointing us to one sure fact that none of them would be the greatest king of all in King Jesus. So I invite you this morning, as we look at these three kings from the line of Christ, to worship Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah and King. We're going to read about, talk about. Discuss kings from the line of Christ, their successes, their failures, and how they point us to Jesus. And in all three stories, we want to remember that Jesus is the ultimate king. We first want to look at King David. He is described in this genealogy as the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. His life is discussed in the books of First and Second Samuel. We want to see David, point number one, the warrior king. There's a lot of words you could use to describe David. But in 1 Samuel 16, as Samuel anoints David, and then in 1 Samuel 17, David is called a man of war, a man of valor, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. He was known as the warrior king. And we see his rise in the book of 1 Samuel, the rise of David the king. In chapter 16, we come to a place in the nation of Israel where God was done with King Saul. If you know your Old Testament history, King Saul had been the king of Israel. And he had started out okay, but eventually he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God removed the kingdom of Israel from his hand. This leads way to the need for a new king. In 1 Samuel 16... God speaks to Samuel. He tells him to go to the house of Jesse, who is David's father, and to look for a new king. David arrives on the scene. There's all these brothers that David had, and they're big and strong, and they look like they fit the part. And one by one, Samuel goes through these sons of Jesse, 
And God does not pick any of them to be the king. Let's remember what God says. He says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height of stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Samuel looks through all these men who are there in Jesse's house and he tells David's father, is there anyone else here? And he says, well, there's David, but he's out watching the sheep. He's not even grown yet. Samuel has Jesse bring David to him. And the Lord says, that is the next king of Israel. David is anointed by Samuel and proclaimed to be the next king. But he would not become king right away. There's a little bit of time that passes. And then in chapter 17, we see his encounter with Goliath. And all of us know the story. Goliath was the giant. He was intimidating the nation of Israel. And no one wanted to face him. Not Saul, not any of the soldiers David eventually is put face to face with Goliath and kills him with stones and a sling. We see from this chapter that the Lord is with David during his rise. From this moment, David becomes close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. He becomes close to the kingship of Saul and his family. He eventually marries one of his daughters, but Saul becomes jealous of David. We see that Saul is not chosen by God to be king through the rest of 1 Samuel. He starts to become weaker, and he eventually tries to kill David twice. If any of you think your father-in-law is difficult to work with, imagine trying to be killed by your father-in-law two times. David ends up fleeing from Saul and going on the run in the wilderness. Eventually, when you get to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul dies and David becomes king. And then you get into 2 Samuel, and the phrase that is used to describe David's kingship is that he's growing greater and greater and greater. He becomes king. He starts taking territory. He makes Jerusalem the capital of the nation of Israel. And it all culminates in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David prays to God, and he wants to build God the temple. He he wants to make a dwelling place for God here on the earth for people to worship him. But unfortunately, David was not able to build the temple for God because he was a man of war. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord does speak to David and he tells David that there will always be a ruler on his throne. That there would be one who would rule on the throne of David forever. And that points us to who? King Jesus, the descendant of David, who we meet here in Matthew chapter 1. Everything is going well in 2 Samuel up until this point, even in the first couple chapters after chapter 7. The first half of 2 Samuel is going well for David up until chapter 11. In chapter 11, we see David's sin with Bathsheba, which we talked about in last week's sermon. In this sin, he commits adultery with the woman. He covers it up by having her husband killed. And then he lies about it for a year. And even after he repents to the Lord, even after God forgives him, we still see the consequences of his sin. If you read the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, it's not an encouraging tale for David. In chapter 13, one of his sons rapes his sister. 
Because of that, another one of his sons kills that son. Through the rest of the book, one of his sons tries to take the throne from David. He eventually forces David into the wilderness where David runs from his son and eventually that son dies. If you read through the rest of 2 Samuel, you see David as a sad and depressed king who has not done what the Lord had asked because of his sin. But yet also in the story of David, we are reminded of God's forgiveness. He writes about the forgiveness he receives from the Lord in the Psalms. And while we do see in his life things did not work out well for him towards the end of it, we do read in the Psalms of the forgiveness and the mercy that God offers to David. And because of that, we can take some principles from the life of David. In Psalm 18, it describes what is written in 2 Samuel in chapter 22. And in the first couple of verses, it says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Isn't it interesting that at the end of David's life, even after having all these things happen to his family, God still is David's Lord. He still watches out for David. David still finds his dependence from the Lord. So there's some principles we can take from David's life. David not only is talked about in First and Second Samuel, he writes many of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. And from these Psalms, I think there's some principles that we can take as we see David and his trust in the Lord. In Psalm 53.3, we see that when you are afraid, you can trust God. David had many times in his life where he could have been prone to fear, whether it was being anointed king, even though Israel already had a king, when it was facing Goliath, when Goliath was nine feet tall, whether it was Saul trying to kill him or his son trying to kill him or people rising up against him when he was king. David had times when he was afraid. But in Psalm 56, 3, David says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. The truth is this morning that we have times when we're afraid. It might not be the same type of fear that, when you had, that you had when you were a child and you were afraid of a monster under the bed or something in your closet, but we still have fears. We still have things that worry us. In fact, the Hebrew word for worry means something that is hanging on to you or just nagging at you. Have you ever had something that you just can't get out of your mind? And in the life of David, he had many different things that could have worried him. But a principle from his life that remains true is that when he was afraid, he trusted the Lord. Secondly, from his life, we see that when you are depressed, you can hope in God. If you read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, David seems like this strong, courageous, upbeat king who worships God. Apart from his sin with Bathsheba, he seems like this righteous person. In fact, God looks at David and says, he is a man after my own heart. But then you read the Psalms that David wrote and you see that he was a man that battled with depression. He was a man that you could almost describe as being bipolar. He says in Psalm 42, 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you with turmoil within me? Hope in God. 
For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David remembers the Lord when he's depressed, when he is prone to being downcast. He finds his hope in the Lord. And there's certainly times in our lives where we can be depressed, whether we struggle with depression that is labeled on us or whether it is just being down about our circumstances. We need to remind ourselves to hope in the Lord, to turn to him, to remember that despite our circumstances that we're in right now, that we can have hope, we can have confidence in God and what he is doing. There were times in David's life where things did not look good, but David was still able to see the bigger picture and worship the God who he served. Thirdly, when you have sinned, you can repent. This obviously is a theme from David's life. His sin is one of the most talked about stories from the life of David. In Psalm 32.1, I read it last week. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. There is a blessing in forgiveness. Sometimes when you're caught in sin, when you've committed a wrongdoing, all you can think about is how you can cover it up and how no one can figure out what you have done. But as David says in the Psalms, there is a blessing to when you have been caught. There's a blessing that comes when you have been forgiven by the Lord, when you repent, when you acknowledge the wrong that you have done. That year of David's life was probably one of the most miserable years of his existence. The true blessing came when he found forgiveness in the Lord. And finally, when you face wickedness, don't worry. In Psalm 37, 1 and 2, it says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb. David faced wickedness in his life. There were unrighteous people who were trying to kill him. There were people that said things about David that were not true. David was betrayed by close friends. Yet through all of this, he reminds himself, don't worry. To allow the Lord to handle those who are unjust, who are not doing what is right, that he will have vengeance. But ultimately, from the life of David, there's not only principles that we can learn, but there's a person that David points us to, and that is Jesus. David may be known as Israel's greatest king, but in his greatness, we see that he still sins. In his greatness, we see that he still dies. He points us to Christ. Jesus will one day come and be the warrior king. And he will be the greatest king that has ever walked this earth. In Revelation chapter 19, it describes what it will be like when Jesus comes. John says in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and in the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury and wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." 
Jesus will be the greatest king to ever walk the earth. So we think about all the leadership in the nation of Israel, the good kings, the bad kings, none of them could ever do what Jesus did. And that's true of our leaders today. Whether you like who's in office, whether you don't like who's in office, none of them can ever do what Jesus is going to do. I don't know how the elections are going to go next year. I can promise you one thing. Whoever in office is not going to be perfect. They're not going to always make the right decisions. They're probably going to fail. And it reminds us that we still wait for the day when Jesus comes to the earth and is the perfect king. And we pray that that day comes soon. David is followed in the story by his son Solomon. And he's the second king we want to talk about. Solomon, the wise king. His story is talked about in the book of 1 Kings. His mother was Bathsheba, and that's referenced in Matthew chapter 1. We also talked about it last week in the women of Jesus' family tree. In the beginning of 1 Kings, there's a little bit of controversy around Solomon and his right to the throne. As David is in his old age, one of Solomon's brothers, Adonijah, tries to take the throne for himself. He just tries to come in and start acting like king, acting like he is in charge. And this was not only not what David wanted, this was dangerous to Solomon and his mother Bathsheba. If Adonijah wanted to be king, he would probably need them to be killed. So eventually, through some circumstances in 1 Kings chapter 1, Nathan the prophet helps Solomon become king, and David proclaims Solomon to be the king, And all of the people trying to threaten his rule are destroyed. Early in Solomon's reign, Solomon is given an opportunity, a blessing from the Lord. God tells Solomon that he would give him whatever he asks for, whether it was riches or armies or whatever he wanted, God would give it to Solomon. And do you remember what Solomon asked for? He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your greatest people? And because of that, Solomon receives wisdom, wisdom and understanding from the Lord. And this makes Solomon the wisest king that Israel ever had. The book of 1 Kings, the first several chapters, discusses Solomon's wisdom. In fact, there's a story that people often point to in Solomon's reign that describes his wisdom. There were two women that had two babies. One of them died in the middle of the night. One of them was still alive. And they were fighting over which child was whose. Now, to most kings or most officials who didn't know these people, it would be very difficult to discern whose child this was. But Solomon does something. He gives him a test. He says, what if I just cut the baby in half and gave you the top half and you the bottom half? And one of the mothers says, well, that's fine with me. And the other mother says, no, just give her the baby. I don't want the child to die. And when that happens, Solomon says, this is the mother, the one that showed the ultimate care and concern for the child. And from that story, we see the wisdom that God gave Solomon. It is talked about not only in the nation of Israel, it's talked about in other nations as well. It says the nations came to Solomon to seek his wisdom. Solomon was not only wise, but because Solomon asked for wisdom, God
God gave him all of the other things as well. He gave him wealth. He gave him power. He gave him buildings. All these things that a king could want, Solomon had. And he ushers in for Israel this golden age, this prime age for their reign. David may have been known as the greatest king of Israel, but during Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel prospered the most. The Bible says that Solomon ruled from the land of the Philistines to Egypt, and his wisdom surpassed all those who walked the earth, obviously besides Christ. Solomon ends up building the temple for the Lord. David was unable to build the temple because he was a man of war. Solomon sets this up, and we see this in the book of 1 Kings, all the steps he takes to build the temple. But unfortunately, we not only see the rise of Solomon the king, we see the downfall of Solomon the king as well. If you get to chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Kings, it says, Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women. You see, what he was doing during this time is he was making these alliances with different nations, and they often required him to marry a king's daughter. So he starts marrying all these different women, and the Lord had warned him. In fact, it reminds us of that here. It says in verse 2, You shall neither enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And that's exactly what happened. As Solomon starts marrying these women, they not, he not only starts to worship God, he worships their gods as well and their idols. And this begins to lead to his downfall. This begins to lead him towards idol worship and profanity. He ends up having 700 wives and 300 concubines, a thousand women in his life. But what's interesting, if you read some of the things that Solomon wrote, because he wrote Proverbs and the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, it doesn't seem like he married one who was truly a woman that honored the Lord. He had all these foreign women who turned his heart away from God, but we see him desire this wife that is a godly woman who is wise and who fears the Lord, and he doesn't seem to have found her. Eventually, because of his idolatry, God raises up adversaries against Solomon, people who would try to take the throne from him. Solomon is worried about this. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, he says, I've worked for all this stuff. I've made this great nation, but I know my son is just going to go ruin it all. And that's exactly what happens. His son ends up dividing the kingdom in two, and Israel was never at peace from that moment. We see the fall of Solomon, and he does seem to repent at the end of his life. At the end of his life, he writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, imploring his son to fear the Lord. But what's so interesting is that if you read about his son Rehoboam, he never seems to get it. He never seems to understand what his father wanted him to do. And we've probably gotten more wisdom and transformation and insight from those books of the Bible than his son ever did. So this, thus we see the fall of Solomon the king. But there's some lessons we can learn from his life as well. Some advice that he gives to us. In Proverbs 1.7, he tells us to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon tells his son that true wisdom and insight 
come from God. If you want to be successful, if you want to be wise, not just in man's terms, but in God's terms, you need to fear the Lord. The New Testament tells us this as well. He says, if any of you lack wisdom in James, let him ask God who gives to all men freely. We should fear the Lord. Secondly, Solomon tells men specifically to find a godly wife, find a godly spouse. Proverbs 31.10 says, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Unfortunately, he had this experience in a negative way. He never seemed to find the godly woman that he describes. And in the book of Proverbs, there's many women that are described. There's the adulterous woman. There's the loud woman. There's the woman of folly. But through the book, there is Lady Wisdom who calls out to us and shows us the way that we should go. And in Proverbs 31, we do see the excellent wife that Solomon seems to value, but that he never had. He thirdly would tell us to be careful with your love. In a book that we don't often like to read in church, in the book of Song of Solomon, he says in chapter 2, verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. He says to be careful with your love. In that book, he shows what a marriage relationship should look like. And again, it doesn't seem to be something that he ever had himself. And lastly, if Solomon were here, he would tell you to remember the Lord's timing. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his timing. At the end of his life, Solomon remembers the sovereignty and the beauty of God. That no matter what situation you're in, whether life seems like it's going well or life seems like it's not going well, you can remember that God is in control. So we see as Solomon is the wise king in the eyes of the world, he becomes very foolish in the eyes of God when he stops fearing the Lord. It shows us that the world's wisdom leaves Solomon as a depressed and a miserable king. He points us to King Jesus who had wisdom beyond his years. Even as a youth, even from 12 years old, we see him going to the temple, talking to the Pharisees and rabbis, and they're just amazed at the wisdom that he had. In his teaching in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the basis for the Christian life, for Christian living. It's the message of the gospel that is given in those chapters. We see the wisdom of the gospel talked about in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul also remarks on the wisdom of God in Romans 11.33-36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. There's one more king we want to look at this morning, and I picked one that we may not often think about in his relation to Christ. There's many other kings mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, 
But I thought it was interesting that he mentions the name Manasseh. We want to talk about Manasseh, who was the wicked king. And he was probably known as Israel's most wicked king who ever walked the earth. His story is described in 2 Kings chapter 21. His father was Hezekiah, so biologically he was part of Jesus' family tree. But he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's kind of that family member in Jesus' family tree that you think about in your family tree and you think, well, yes, we're technically family, but we don't really claim him or we don't really want anything to do with him because of his actions. And if you read 2 Kings 21, you see that he was a wicked man. He did what was evil in God's sight. He started reigning when he was 12. It's interesting as you read through these books how early some of these people started to reign. His grandson, King Josiah, became king when he was eight years old. Manasseh became king when he was 12. We're immediately told that he did what was evil in God's sight. Unlike his father, Hezekiah, or his grandson, Josiah, he did not worship the Lord, but he installed idol worship in Israel. He started worshiping Baal and Ashereth. He was like Ahab of the northern kingdom. In verse 9 of 2 Kings 21, we're told that Manasseh led Israel to do more wickedness than all of the other nations around them. The Gentile nations who didn't worship God were told that Israel was even worse than they were. He started putting idols in the temple of God. He not only personally sinned, he led Israel to sin as a nation. The morality of the nation was severely declining. We're told in the book of 2 Kings that there were prophets that spoke out against Manasseh, that told him to change, that told the nation to change. But this did not lead to repentance. Instead, Manasseh had them killed. It's tradition that Manasseh killed the prophet Isaiah by having him sawed in half. And what's so interesting about the reign of Manasseh is that in 2 Kings 21, there's nothing good said. It's just that he was evil, he died. You can read about him in the book of Chronicles. But if you go to the book of 2 Chronicles, his story is told there as well. And there's many different things that are described about his life. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, the writer gives us an interesting narrative about the end of his life. We see his redemption, or we see his repentance, at least. As God implored him to repent, it says in verse 10 of chapter 33, it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. God said, you should repent, you should seek me, but they just weren't listening. In verse 11, it says, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks, and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. It's discussed by scholars that he was probably had a hoof or a ring put in his nose and was led around like an animal through the city. And while he's in chains and while he's in this distress, he does something. He calls upon the Lord. It says in verse 12, And when he was in distress, he entreated favor from the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to them, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. 
So we see this story and we think, well, of course, Manasseh is going to repent. He's going to try to go back to the Lord because he's in chains and he's being led around by an animal. But yet whatever happens, the Lord obviously knows it's genuine because it says God was moved by his prayer. And God rescued Manasseh and brought him back to Israel. And if you read about the last days of his reign, he did what was right in the eyes of God. He took the idols down. He started worshiping the Lord. Now you might say it's a little bit too little too late. His son did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And eventually Judah was destroyed. Judah was sent into captivity because of the actions of Manasseh. But it is interesting that God offers him repentance. And it should be a lesson to us. You know, sometimes as Christians... We see people who are wicked and maybe we see their repentance and we think, well, they don't really mean it. They're not really genuine. They've not really changed. And while we do want to see fruit that comes from their lives, I doubt there are a lot of people that thought that Manasseh was genuine in his repentance. But yet, what does it say? It says that God was moved by his prayer. The Lord saw his prayer and he forgave Manasseh of his sins. And it teaches us something about the forgiveness that God offers us. That the God of the Old Testament is not just this vindictive bully. He's not just this person that wants to punish us. He wants to offer us forgive, forgiveness. As we read in that story at the beginning of the sermon, the king who took the lashes for his mother, God is the one who both combines perfect mercy and perfect justice as he forgives us of our sins. You see, in all the kings, whether they were good or whether they were evil, they all, fall, they all fell short of the glory of God. They all did not do what was right in God's sight. Every one of them died. And they point us to the fact that they needed the gospel too. And just like the kings of Israel... We are sinful as well. The Bible says we have fallen short of God's glory, that we have turned away from God. We've not sought him like we should. We deserved death. We deserve separation from God. All of these kings point us to the greatest king of all, King Jesus, who was born as a baby, who came to the earth to save us from our sins. And so as we close our sermon this morning, we want to talk about who King Jesus is. He's unlike these kings. He didn't grow up in royalty. He wasn't ever praised like he should have been here on earth. But in the New Testament, we are told of the story of Jesus. First of all, he is the God-man, fully God and fully man. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes Jesus and how he came to earth and really what we celebrate this Christmas in the incarnation of Jesus as he's imploring the Philippians to walk in humility. He says in verse 6 that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus was God, and he didn't have to come to earth to take on our flesh, but this is what King Jesus did for us. Although he was the king, although he was the Lord, he humbled himself. He is unlike other kings. He is fully God and fully 
man. And while he is powerful, Jesus is also gentle. In the book of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus describes himself to us. It's one of the interesting portions of scripture where Jesus describes his heart to us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. While Jesus is powerful, while Jesus is just, while Jesus, yes, is the warrior king, he is also gentle. He invites all of us to come to him and seek forgiveness. He is not like other kings. Gentleness would not be something rulers would want to be known for. Maybe they'd want to be known for their fierceness or their authority or their justice or their power. Jesus was known for his gentleness. We also see that he's a servant. Jesus is a servant. In Matthew 20, 20, verse 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many While Jesus has all the authority and has all the power, he came to the earth as a servant. He came to serve others, ultimately through his life. Jesus the King was a servant. And lastly, we remember this morning that he was the sacrifice for sins. In the book of 1 John, John describes Jesus to the people that he's writing to. And in chapter 2, he says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we remember that this morning, that Jesus the King died for sinners. He was the sacrifice for sins. He offered himself for us. You think, what other king would do that? He is the king that combines perfect mercy and perfect justice as he offers us new and eternal life. So as we look at all three of these kings that we've described, and then the fourth king in King Jesus, we should worship him because he is truly worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life here on earth his death on the cross, his resurrection, the hope that he gives us for eternal life. We ask this morning that in this Christmas season, that you would help us to remember these things, that we would center on him and that we'd be thankful for the providence of God, how you brought him to the world and the gospel that we can enjoy. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer us, that we can have hope and new and eternal life. We pray that we would remember that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.